Friends, let us pray. Holy God, quiet our hearts and minds to hear what you have to say to us. Fill us with your word. Give us understanding by your Holy Spirit that we may live lives worthy of you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Today's gospel lesson is from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Hear these words of the gospel. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The longer I am in ministry and contemplate what it is to live a life of faith, the more I conclude it's all about living in the tension. The tension between the world as it is and the world as it should be. What we can do and what we'd like to do. What's good for me and what's good for us. What the rules say and what's their underlying intent in the first place. Sometimes we live in these tensions faithfully, sometimes not so much. Sometimes we get it right, and sometimes we fall short. The lawyer in today's gospel reading was having trouble getting it right. Now, if you heard last week's reading from Luke, you may remember that Jesus sent out 70 of his followers to bear God's good news to share with one and all in word and deed that 
In Jesus, God's kingdom had indeed come near. And then Luke's narrative tells us that these 70 returned from their assignment with joy, telling Jesus stories of all that they had done because of the power and the authority that Jesus had given them. But it seems the lawyer heard this and it got under his skin. Power and authority from Jesus, the uncredentialed Galilean, to use Matthew Skinner's description. What about his own authoritative credentials? He was, after all, an expert interpreter of Mosaic law. What could this uncredentialed Galilean possibly know that he didn't? So he stood up to challenge Jesus to discredit him, to catch him in a contradiction. With his two questions to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life, and who is my neighbor, the lawyer wanted to justify himself, to narrow the confines of his own personal responsibility. This is a contemporary struggle as well for individuals and for the church when we have so much to do within our own lives and for our own families and for our own internal community of members what is our responsibility to the world around us what's good enough what's my share or as Hannah Adams Ingram put it, what's the least I can do for the most gain? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, the story of the Good Samaritan. Now the truth is, for the past 10 years, I have successfully avoided preaching on this text, either by choice or by happenstance of preaching schedules. This parable is so familiar. We throw around the term Good Samaritan in the public domain. We have Good Samaritan laws to protect those who voluntarily help someone who's injured or ill. We have Good Samaritan rehab facilities and nursing homes and hospitals. In a quick Google search, I discovered that RIT has a Good Samaritan protocol. There's even a Good Samaritan app that you can download. And there are Good Samaritan grants. It is familiar. The characters are legend. There's the unfortunate man at the side of the road, beaten, bloodied, and unidentifiable. He mattered so little in the eyes of the world that the two who saw him passed on by. There's the Samaritan who was despised not only because he was from the wrong side of the tracks, but possibly also because of his occupation. He had oil, wine, and money with him. So according to scholars Bruce Molina and Richard Rohrbaugh, he could have been one of those traders who grew wealthy at others' expense. Perhaps a Wall Street eye banker, a thief. It adds to the shock 
that the Samaritan's exemplary compassion would have evoked in Luke's first century audience. This man who was from a despised class of people had the eyes to see the woundedness that the others couldn't or wouldn't. Familiar. And then I read the parable again, and I noticed one more character that I had really never paid any attention to before, a bit player, the innkeeper. Now I imagine the innkeeper knew the road from Jerusalem to Jericho very well. It was and still is a road for travelers, for traders, pilgrims, and soldiers. He would know that it was treacherous. It was an 18-mile journey from Jerusalem down to Jericho, a long way to walk. And when I say down, I really mean down. You go from 2,500 feet above sea level to 800 feet below in that short distance. The innkeeper would know that the closer to Jericho you got, the further you'd go down the steep slopes from fertile land to bone-dry desert, the less sure-footed you would be. He would know that as the rainfall washed down the mountains into the otherwise dry ravines, it could flood and damage the roads. And that innkeeper would also know that because of the terrain, there were so many places for bandits to lie in wait and hide. For the travelers and merchants and pilgrims were a target too lucrative to let pass. I imagine he heard tale after tale of robberies and attempted robberies from those who stopped by his seedy little motel. And yes, it was likely a seedy little motel. No Hilton, no Holiday Inn Express, and not even a Motel 6. For according to Molina and Rohrbach, public inns like this one were notoriously dirty and dangerous themselves. Only people without family or social connections would ever risk staying at a public inn. So if any occupation was less socially acceptable than an ethically challenged trader, it would be an innkeeper. And this was the one that the Samaritan invited into the circle of caregiving for the wounded man. The Samaritan needed help, a place for the man to heal, an extra caregiver while he had other matters to attend to until he would come back. The Samaritan found a partner to help the man in crisis, and his chosen collaborator was as unlikely as the Samaritan himself. Now, whether the innkeeper experienced the same deep compassion as the Samaritan, well, the parable doesn't say. But their response collectively was one of neighbor. See, Jesus' story didn't just answer the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? Luke Powery says it reveals that the more important question is, am I neighbor? Are we neighbor when we see the wounded at the side of the roads that we travel? Or do we avoid those roads in the first place? 
Last year, our dining room ministry study team undertook several illuminating exercises, ones that I encourage everyone here to do. The first was for each team member to take out a local map, the old-fashioned kind that you get from AAA, and to open it up, spread it out on the table, and draw a line from your home to all of the places one would go during a normal week. Home to work, home to church, home to run errands, to see entertainment, to go out to dinner, etc. And then notice the patterns. What areas of the city did team members travel? And which were left out? Fascinating results. Some rather large swaths of the city were untouched. And you can probably guess which ones they were. The next exercise was to draw a circle within a one to two mile radius from the church. We divided it into pie-shaped segments. We paired up and assigned a segment to each team to see what we could see. We went up and down all of the streets within our respective segments with a long list of things to look for. First we drove it, and then we walked it. You know how, it e how easy it is to go down a road a million times and miss the details. We looked for things that would indicate whether neighbors could get their basic needs met if they lacked transportation. Were there any grocery stores with fresh produce nearby? Were there insurance agents or daycare providers, pharmacies, banks, or playgrounds? Were they in good repair? What about the sidewalks or homes and streets? What did we see? What needs became apparent, and how did they connect to those who come to DRM every Saturday? And more importantly, how would we use that information as we continue our ministry? It's not easy to be neighbors because once we see something, it's hard to unsee. It's easier not to look. We are right there with the lawyer asking Jesus, how far does my responsibility extend? How far do our boundaries go before we no longer have to be a neighbor? One block? A mile or two? Does it only extend to Rochester or New York State? What about all the way to the southern border and the growing crisis of inhumane conditions at detention camps? Does it go even further away across continents? Many of you know that my husband Brad and I traveled to Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories in May. We can't unsee what we saw in cities like Hebron, where peacekeepers accompany Arab children to school so that they won't be assaulted and injured by illegal settlers or overzealous soldiers. That harassment happens on a daily basis. What do I do? What do we do in response to the woundedness we see, whether we wanted to see it or not? 
Neil Fisher says, we need to answer the question, what must I do, by first answering, what story am I part of? That's what the leaders at Sabeel, an ecumenical liberation theology center in Jerusalem, are doing. And in addition to their important interfaith work among Christian, Muslim, and Jewish faiths, part of their response to the woundedness among their people is to strengthen their own Christian communities. And they're doing that with organized Bible study groups to study Jesus' parables, parables like today's, and to connect their faith to what's going on around them. We answer the question, what must I do, by first answering, what story am I part of? And the story we are part of goes well beyond moral obligation, which by itself would be daunting at best. In today's interchange between Jesus and the lawyer, Fisher says, an individual who was created to love God and neighbor was required to show mercy to anyone in need. But the foundation of this obligation is in the purpose intrinsic to his being, loving God and neighbor. The conviction that great moral causes are founded on the purposes for which we are created gives staying power to movements that might otherwise end in despondency and despair. The story matters. The story we are part of is a story of eternal life, which is both a present reality and a future hope. So we come back to us, members and friends of Third Church. What must we do? How are we to be neighbors? How do we respond in an environment of complex, multifaceted and systemic wounds. Jesus gave us his answer with a story, a story about loving God and loving neighbor, the story of the Good Samaritan and his supportive partner, the innkeeper, the story of a collaboration. It is a model for rain. As Ernest said, it is that interfaith collaboration across Rochester to house homeless families. And we function here at Third Church, in a sense, as innkeepers. And we couldn't do it without our partners at Temple Brithkodesh and our other community members. Our hunger programs rely on collaboration with Foodlink and the companies who sponsor the East Avenue Grocery Run. Our friends at Memorial AME Zion Church have invited us into Rock City Faith-Based Community Service Alliance, which includes East Avenue historically white churches as well as historically black churches. 
At the South Wedge Food Program at Rock Salt Center, clients of that emergency food program make up a critical portion of its volunteers. The Mission Immersion Program partners with organizations and churches around the city. Schools 3 and 35 and East High allow us to collaborate with them and tutor under-resourced children. Fully a third of our outreach volunteers come from the wider community, outside of this place. They might not even be religious at all. Our deacons collaborate with staff and members to reach out to those within our own congregation who are in need of care and companionship. As you heard with the announcement about Saturday's Pride Parade, we collaborate with, out, with allies around the city for LGBTQ inclusion. And for needs that are far away, we accept invitations to participate in denominational special offerings for disaster relief, for worldwide ministries of compassion and justice and more. And equally vital, we pray. We pray for the world. Every Sunday and in between, there is a place for everyone, whether you are on the leading edge or in a supporting role. We are, we were, we are, and always will be created to participate in God's mercy. God's grace, and God's redemption. Who is our neighbor, and how are we to be neighbors? Jesus gives us the answer. Let me tell you a story. Amen. <laughs>